Good morning. Welcome to the Charity Baptist Church. I'm Pastor Bo, and I'm excited to have you uh, join us as we dive into God's Word together here on, on Facebook. Um, if you have a, a copy of the Scriptures, uh, we are going to be in John chapter 14. We're going to be picking up in, in verse 1 and going to verse uh, 14. So picking up right where we left off a couple weeks ago. Um, as you're turning there, let me, let me tell you a, a, a story when I graduated from college in the summer of 2011, I moved back to my parents' house for just a few weeks before Lacey and I got married. And it was an unusual time for me because when I moved back into my childhood home, it didn't feel like home. You know, for 18 years, this, this house, this address was my full-time home. For four years of college, it was my part-time home. But for that month, it wasn't home. Because I didn't have a, a room anymore. My younger brother, Tarver, stole my room at the very first opportunity. I didn't have a, a bed anymore. I slept on a couch for that month. And I didn't have a home anymore. You know, I felt like a guest in my childhood home. I remember feeling restless and, and unsettled and even feeling homeless. And that sounds drastic and, and, and intense and maybe a little bit too far, but it's how I felt in that moment. And and I remember not feeling at, at home again until June 4th, 2011, when I exchanged vows with Lacey at Bible Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia. And from that point forward, I've never felt homeless again. You know, I was home with her in our condo in Southern California on our honeymoon. I was home with her in our rental house off Highway 11 in Jones County. I was home with her in our apartment in Louisville during seminary. I was home with her in our houses on Stewart Avenue and Stone Gables Drive and, and Holly Lane here in North Valdosta. And I'm not trying to sound you know, cheesy or, or cliche, but I'm trying to make this point that when I'm with my wife, I'm at home. When I'm with my three children, I'm at home. When I'm with my gold retriever, I I guess, technically, I'm home. You know, we often say in, in Christian culture that the church is a people, not a, a building, and we should see how the family unit functions the same way. When we are surrounded by our loved ones, we are home. And so I would imagine that you don't struggle to understand this sentiment. You can relate to the idea you know, you were, you were born with this desire to feel at home. You were created with this yearning for a place of, of comfort, peace, rest, hope, and love. But the unfortunate reality is, while you may find many places and spaces that check many of those boxes, you'll never find perfection. I can attest that my home is close to perfect, but it's not perfect. It wasn't perfect on Monday when my youngest trip refused to take a nap and spent most of the morning screaming. It wasn't perfect on Tuesday when Parker woke up that next morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at 5.30 a.m. and ready to attack the day. It wasn't perfect on Thursday when Chandler started a doctor-prescribed round of Miralax to clear out her system, and it wasn't perfect over the weekend when Lacey and I sat down and, and worked on our budget together. And so I find over and over again that my home may be close to perfect, but it's not perfect. 
God can confirm that my children are polite in public, respectful in church, well-behaved in school, and adorable on Facebook and Instagram, but I can also confirm that most of the time they ride on the hot mess express. Because you can come close to perfection in this life, but you'll never find perfection. You may have a great family situation, but it's not perfect. You may have an amazing circle of friends, but it's not perfect. You may have a wonderful job, but it's not perfect. You may have a storybook romance with your spouse that has sprawled over decades. It should be the subject of a Nicholas Sparks novel, but it's not perfect. And here's the point. You'll you'll never find a perfect home on earth because your permanent home is not earth. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis in his famous work, Mere Christianity. He wrote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. A man wants companionship. Well, there's such a thing as woman. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. It's a a simple argument that if we can't find complete satisfaction, fulfillment, and contentment in this world, then we must be made for another world. And this is a a, a biblical idea. This is why the Apostle Peter calls believers exiles and sojourners on earth. This is why Paul claims our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews writes, Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the the narrow path to eternal life. We're going to look at one of the most controversial verses in Scripture. John 14, 6, where Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So once again, we've reached another one of these well-known I am statements in the Gospel of John. If you're keeping score... This is the sixth I am statement. In the next chapter, chapter 15, we will see the seventh and final I am statement. The first five statements were delivered in the public square, and the final two statements were delivered in a private room. But each of these seven statements serves the purpose of clarifying the identity of Jesus, explaining the mission of Jesus, and presenting the message of Jesus. Jesus. So in in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, Christ started preparing his disciples for his final departure. His hour had finally come, so he's he's moving closer to being betrayed, arrested, and crucified. But we see that even as the shadow of the cross starts growing larger, Jesus using these final moments in the upper room to encourage and equip his disciples. He got down on his knees with a towel and a a basin, and he 
provided for them a powerful lesson about servant leadership by washing their feet. And then he used this, this selfless action as a jumping off point. And he gives them this powerful lesson. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and, and you are right. For so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash each other's feet. And he continued later with a new commandment, just as I have loved you, love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. See, Jesus was preparing to live out the words of a previous I am statement in chapter 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. This is where he was heading, but before he gets there, he has a clear charge for the disciples. Just as I have loved you, love one another. And this is a, a simple message for them to grasp. I love you. Now you go love each other. But we find at the end of chapter 13 and, and now as we move into chapter 14, that they're far too worried about the idea of, of, of Christ leaving them behind for this command to, to resonate. All they heard from Jesus was, I'm leaving. And so they started freaking out. All right, so let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 14. And we're going to read down to verse 14. So follow along with me as we go. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you to, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. To where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you are. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So before we focus our attention on the heart of the passage, uh, which is Thomas's question in verse 5 and Jesus' answer in verse 6, I want to highlight a couple phrases that, that Jesus says in verses 1 through 4. The first one's in verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. 
we should be so incredibly encouraged by the graciousness and, and kindness of Jesus in this moment. Because throughout the Gospels, consistently, we see the disciples fall short. When Jesus preached the gospel, they didn't understand the message. When Jesus completed signs, they didn't grasp the significance. When Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, they didn't make the connection. When Jesus spoke of the cross, they didn't want to deal with the reality. You know, over and over again, they were close. They were almost there. They were in the ballpark. They clearly had some level, some understanding, some faith in Christ, but they still didn't quite get it. I mean, look at the end of, of, of chapter 13. Jesus spent 12 years investing in their lives. And in a 24-hour period, Judas has left to betray him. Christ has said that Peter will deny him. And we know that the others will run away because they have more questions than answers. And so Christ had every right to cut ties with this group. We know that he was heading to the cross. He said that his soul was, was troubled. We know that later this evening when he's praying in the garden that he'll start sweating drops of blood as he starts to sit under the weight of what will be required of him. And he even asks his father, is there any other way to accomplish your goal here? Is there any other way that you can take this cup away from me? He has the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's hours away from his slaughter on a cross. He's hours away from experiencing more pain than any person in the history of the world as God's wrath is poured out on him. Yet in these final moments, he still says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He would have been completely justified giving up on them. He was in his rights to fly off the handle and say, guys, enough with the questions, enough with the doubts, enough with the concerns. I raised Lazarus from the dead. I calmed the sea. I fed 5,000. What else do you want to see? Why are you worried? Can you please just trust me for a minute? He would have been justified. In saying that, but, but he doesn't. Instead, he remained patient with them, just as he constantly remains patient with us. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. Because, and this is the second thing in verses 2 and 3, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says this, this twice. In other words, this is why you shouldn't be troubled. This is why you shouldn't be worried. This is why you shouldn't be weary. This is why you shouldn't be frightened. This is why you shouldn't be anxious. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this place, of course, is his father's house. And if you grew up in the church, you may remember an audio journaling song from 1993 about the Father's House. I was four years old in 1993, so this song was played a lot as I came up through, through preschool and children's ministry. But I, I'm not going to sing it, but I'll, I'll read the, the chorus. And if you know the song, that should be sufficient to get it stuck in your head for the rest of the day. 
But it goes like this, come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. It's a big, big yard where we can play football. A big, big house. It's my father's house. Now, we should understand that eternity with Christ is not sitting on a cloud in a white robe. It's not strumming a harp. It's not singing from a choir riser and doing nothing else. In reality, what Audio Adrenaline was talking about here is, is, is fairly accurate. You know, Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book about heaven, writes that many assume heaven will be unlike earth, but why do we think this? God designed earth for human beings, and nearly every description of heaven in Scripture includes references to earthly things, eating, music, animals, water, trees, fruits, and a city with gates and streets. The Bible speaks of, of new heavens and a new earth, not a non-heaven and non-earth. New doesn't mean fundamentally different, but vastly superior. So understand that most earthly things are, are gifts from God designed to whet our appetites for eternally satisfying joy of heavenly things. But in the context of John 14, we can run into a common misconception because Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a, a place for you. And, and so we can sort of misinterpret what, what preparation is happening here. We can picture Jesus in the construction business or the hotel management business. He's got a hard hat on. He's overlooking blueprints for the next row of houses. He's getting our, our room together. He's making our bed, cleaning our bathroom, setting up our furniture. He's building parks and, and lakes and sports fields for us. He's planning grand banquets with delicious food and, and drink. And so if we're not careful, this is what we can think about when we hear Christ say, I'm preparing a place for you. But understand the context of chapter 14. Understand that I'm going to prepare a place for you means I'm going to die for you. It means I'm going to the cross for you. It means I'm going to be the atoning sacrifice for you. I'm going to do this so that you can dwell in the presence of a holy God. Because Jesus had been warning them about his approaching hour for a while, he told them in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. You know, you, you know about the cross. You, you know about my coming death and, and, and resurrection. You know about the Father's glorification through my obedience. You, you know where I'm going, and, and you know how to follow me there. You know, right, guys? And we've, we've covered this in detail, right? Wrong. They, they should have known, but they didn't. They were still puzzled. So Thomas served as a spokesman for the group and asked the question, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You know, and in Christian circles, we know that Thomas is, is doubting Thomas because of his reaction to the news of the resurrection. When the first disciples that see Jesus show up and tell the others, Thomas says, until I see the holes in his hands and the scars in his side, I, I will not 
believe, which is not a great look for our guy. But still, Doubting Thomas is a little bit of a harsh nickname because he certainly wasn't the only one with doubts. So why should he carry this unforgiving, unrelenting nickname for 2,000 years? He shouldn't be Doubting Thomas. He should be Brutally Honest Thomas. This is what we see in the upper room. Jesus says, you know the way, and Thomas responds, no, we don't. How, how can we know the way? See, Thomas was bringing an honest question to the feet of his master. He understood that, that Jesus could provide a path for him. He sensed that Jesus was offering a new home to him. He recognized that Jesus held the key to heaven for him, but he didn't know the way. And instead of just arrogantly nodding his head and, and believing that you know, he's right in there with everybody else, right? We, we all know the way. Sure, we do. No, he asks the question, Lord, how can we know the way? And so in verse 6, Jesus spells it out for him. He explained this, this narrow route to heaven was not a path, but a person. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, one of the, the primary concerns in my preparation is that this particular verse is, is so familiar to us. If you've, if you've been in the church for years and years, there are certain verses that just wash over you, certain verses that are sort of white noise at this point, that you, you've read it, you, you've heard Sunday school lessons about it, you've studied it, you've memorized it, you, you've meditated on it, you know, you get it, right? Like you've seen this verse from every possible angle. And, and John 14, 6 definitely falls into that category. But, but for our purposes this morning, I want to encourage you to look at it with fresh eyes, to look at it without, without preconceived conditions, to consider how monumental these three claims are. That Jesus isn't claiming to be a way or, or, or some truth or, or one way to live your life. He's claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. You know, if we believe these words are true, we stand in direct contradiction with the majority of the world. If we affirm these words of John 14, 6... We're saying you can't chart your own path to God. We're saying all roads don't lead to heaven. We're saying that 4,000 religions and, and worldviews are wrong. We're saying that 5 billion people in the world and, and tens of thousands of people in Lowndes County are are currently living apart from Christ and are currently in eternal danger. So church, if, if we're going to confirm John 14, 6, if we're going to believe something so bold, close-minded, countercultural, borderline arrogant, then we must understand it completely so that we can defend it completely. And so I want to look at these three claims in greater detail. 
I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. So first Jesus says, I am the way. But the world says, there are many ways. There's a famous quote from Muhammad Ali, where he's asked about his interpretation of, of religion, and he said that rivers, ponds, lakes, and streams, they have different names, but they all contain water, just as all religion contains truth. When he gave this answer, the, the interviewer pressed him for his view on eternal life, and he said, one day we will die, and, and God will, will judge us, and he'll weigh our, our good deeds against our bad deeds, and then if we have more good deeds, he'll send us to heaven. If we have more bad deeds, he'll send us to hell. Unfortunately, much of the secular world would agree with Ali. A few years ago, LifeWay Research surveyed a large group of Americans on the subject of eternal life. Although the majority of those surveyed claimed to believe in God, many of them held confusing and contradictory views about heaven and hell. While 54% of them agreed with the statement, only those who trust in Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal life, 64% of the same group agree with the statement, God accepts worship from all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not a mathematician, but I'm seeing a little overlap there in the numbers. And there are people that agree, yes, Jesus is the only way, but also God accepts worship from Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam. Worse than that, 77% of the group agreed that people must contribute their own effort to their personal salvation. See, this is a, a fundamental view of, of religion for most of the world. Other religions and worldviews are, are centered on working towards a blessed afterlife. Rolling up your sleeves and, and, and doing what you have to do, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps to achieve eternal life. Even some atheists will concede, you know, if there is a God, salvation will be found in, in, in doing good works. If you did more good than bad, You'll, you'll go to heaven. You know, they have the theology of the NBC show, The Good Place. And every great religious leader in history has pointed to a way that they believe you can find life. But here's the difference with Jesus. While every religious leader in history has said, let me show you the way, Jesus says, I am the way. You know, Buddha pointed to the eightfold path to achieving enlightenment. Muhammad pointed to the five pillars of, of Islam. Hindu leaders pointed to principles for finding peace. Joseph Smith pointed to, to good works. L. Ron Hubbard pointed to his writings. And we could give other examples, but the point is every world religion sees something broken. Every worldview calls for healing. Every worldview seeks improvement. Every worldview recognizes human error. It, error is keeping us from nirvana or enlightenment or paradise or peace or salvation. But every worldview tries to fix the problem with rules, regulations, and practices to combat our human nature. Every worldview centers on 
good works. Every worldview puts the responsibility on the person except for one. Unlike his counterparts, Christ doesn't point to a better way. He says, I am the better way. I'm the way back to the Father. He makes this clear in the second half of verse 6. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And based on the surrounding context, when we read through me, we should understand it as through faith in me. No one comes to the Father except through faith in me. We can find support for this in surrounding verses and throughout the Gospel of John. In verse 1, he says, believe in me. Verse 7, he says, knowing the Father when you know me. Elsewhere, John 6, 35, whoever believes in me shall not thirst. 7.38, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 11.25, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And remember, the sole purpose of John's gospel, he wrote it so that we may believe in Christ. So this is the good news of the gospel. We don't need a checklist. We don't need rules and regulations. We don't need a strict moral code. We need a relationship with the God of the universe through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son. Jesus says, I am the way. Second, Jesus says, I am the truth. But the world said, there, there is no truth. There's no absolute truth. There's no certain truth. You know, and, and in one sense, we can't really blame the world for having a skewed view on truth because we often see opinions, estimation, speculations, and, and nonsense advertised as truth. You know, last night I typed the phrase, the truth about, into Google. And one of the, the, the top searches was the truth about face masks. And so I spent a few minutes scrolling through article after article and, and video after video claiming to have the truth about face masks, claiming to have the, the final solution about this great hot button issue in our country. Should you wear a mask or should you not wear a mask? Does it work or does it, does it do nothing for you? And I found that some said face masks work. You know, if the entire country wears face masks, the statistical models show that hundreds of thousands of lives will be saved. Others said face masks are, are useless. They offer you little to no protection. But here's the thing. Both of those polar opposite views prefaced their findings with, here is the truth. And it extends beyond, you know, culture wars and, and hot-button political issues. It extends to religion. There's an increasing number of religious nuns in our world today. You know, a religious nun is someone who says there is no absolute truth, therefore there is no God. But this logic doesn't really hold water. If you claim there's no absolute truth, is your claim included? If you say with complete certainty there is no truth 
Are you not making a truth statement about the lack of truth? There is truth. When Jesus came to the earth, he was the exact representation of God. He was the word who became flesh. He was the image of the invisible God. And so from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a redemptive story centered on the work of Jesus Christ to save us from death and destruction. The Old Testament prophets predicted his coming. The gospel writers chronicled his life in the letters of of Paul and, and others in the second half of the New Testament told the story of the early church and provided instruction on life after his incarnation. The Bible is absolute truth. The Bible stands above all other texts because it, it's the only text to be inspired by God himself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible should be held with the utmost authority in our lives and our churches because it is literally the breath of God. It is the voice of God through inspired human authors. So when we open up God's word to read, study, memorize, preach, or sing, we are providing the Holy Spirit with an opportunity to speak to us. The Bible is a roadmap for us. It's the only religious text that contains complete truth. It's the only religious text directly from the one true God. It is absolute truth and it will never cease to be relevant. Isaiah says the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Jesus says, I am the truth. And finally, Jesus says, I am the life. But the world says, do what makes you happy. The world says, you're, you're the captain, you, you call the shots. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, you're free to live as you please. You are the way, the truth, and the life in your own personal universe. Do what makes you happy. But this is a slippery slope because doing what makes you happy doesn't make you happy. The woman at the well had a revolving door of suitors, but she wasn't happy. The rich young ruler had great possessions and lots of money, but he wasn't happy. Saul had power, influence, and the respect of his peers, but he wasn't happy. We can substitute lots of other things. Do you know why they weren't happy? Well, let Saul, who became Paul, explain. He wrote later in his life, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of many things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And, and before Paul writes those words in Philippians 3, he lays out all of his accomplishments. 
He checked every box. He, he reached every goal. He completed every task. And he said, I count all of those accolades of my former life as, as rubbish, literally waste or, or dumb if I may gain Christ. All of the power and, and influence and respect, all of it from my former life. The wealth, it's rubbish to me if I can have Christ. And, and what, what Paul was, was driving at was this point that we can only find true fulfillment, peace, and joy in Christ. That God wants each of us to experience a greater purpose in life and a greater position in death through Christ. We've already covered the, the latter a little bit, so we won't rehash it, but we should recognize that, that life in Christ has a lot more to do, has, is much more than a future reservation in the big, big house with lots and lots of room. Eternal life doesn't start when you take your last breath. It starts when you trust in your Savior for the first time. Listen, if God's touchdown, if God's home run was salvation, He would just suck every new Christian into heaven as soon as they reached the aisle or as soon as they, they said amen after the sinner's prayer. But he created us for a greater purpose in this life. He created us to glorify, worship, and exalt him. He created us to love, serve, and share the gospel with others. Look at verses 12 through 14 again. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you notice there in verse 12 that Jesus promised the disciples would do greater works than him? Now to be clear, greater doesn't mean more spectacular, more remarkable, more amazing. Greater simply means more effective. Think about it. Jesus wrapped up his ministry on earth with 11 followers. And then in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit poured out. Peter preaches his first sermon and several thousand join the church. And, and throughout the rest of the book, through the leadership of the disciples, the church expands from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. For those first two or three hundred years, the church exploded. Some of the growth can be attributed to seasons of intense persecution under a few emperors. You know, when Christ's followers are being nailed to crosses and covered in hot tar and burned at the stake and still proclaiming the gospel, their testimonies really resonated with people. But some of the growth can also be credited to Defenders of the early church and apologists of the faith who 
were always defending Christ in the public square. And their greatest defense was not an intellectual argument for the existence of God or a convincing proof that Jesus was the only way or a complete mastery of the Roman road. It was a much more simple formula. They would simply say, look at the church. Look at the the joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment that they have. Look at the way they love each other. Look at the way they care for their orphans and their widows. Look at the way they reach out in their communities. Do you see something different with these people? Do you see that Christ is real through the lives of his followers? Church, Jesus isn't one way, some truth, a life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father, the only absolute truth. He's the only life worth living. So church, we should make it our goal to live every day like John 14, 6 is true. And we should allow these words to be much more than than head knowledge for us because we know that head knowledge that doesn't lead to heart transformation leaves us in the same spot apart from Christ. But the good news is that John 14.6 is not judgment for the world. It's an invitation for the world to come home. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, it's my prayer that we would see John 14, 6 with new eyes this morning and, and this week. And it could be so easy for us, we've been in the church for a long time, to, to, to hear this verse and just to say, yes, absolutely, I agree. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the, the truth, Jesus is the life. And we sort of check those three boxes and then we, we move on with the rest of our day. But Father, I, I pray that this morning that we would collectively sit under the weight of these words and realize that Jesus is the only way, Jesus is the only truth, Jesus is the only life. Lord, so many believers live like they're just, you know, biding their time until they get into heaven. I remember hearing a pastor one time say that, you know, why would, would someone go all the way to Orlando just to sit at the gate of Disney World? Not go inside and, and enjoy everything it has to offer. So Father, I pray that we'd be a people that are enjoying eternal life with Christ now. Enjoying the the joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment of walking with Christ right now. 
And Father, I pray that the overflow of that would be a, a deep desire to proclaim Christ in this community. To proclaim Christ to the 70% of Lowndes County who are not affiliated with a Christian church. So Father, help us to be those bold witnesses. I pray these things in Jesus' name.